Well, thank you so much. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. This is the actual first time I have been in an in-person service for over a year and a half. Uh, go figure why. So uh, um, this has been experimental. And last night, uh, my very old iPad decided to have a fit. And so this is my first time preaching from paper in about, uh, about seven years. So it's a, it's, it's a return in many ways. Um, so even as we're here to uh, attend to the Word of God for us um, in our lives and in our world, I wonder if we could do something today, and that is, for the first time, just to breathe for a moment. I invite you to take that same breath with me, if you would, and take a nice, big, deep breath. Because I don't know about you, but I'm a little bit nervous about what happens next. As this is my first time back preaching in person in a congregation, being in any church in, in person for about a year and a half, after a lifetime of church going, this is really strange territory for me. Because this is the first time I've actually felt nervous going back to any church. So I'm going to breathe one more time and I invite you to do the same with me. Thank you for indulging me. So our scripture today comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter three, 13, verses 1 to 5. It reads, Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. This is the word of the Lord. So thank you for inviting me to speak today. I really appreciate it. And today, I'd like to focus on what is on all of our minds, and that is to listen together to the word of God for us today in our time and at this place. Now, truth be told, when I first composed this sermon, my, my opening words were actually, as the pandemic recedes. <laughs> but as we all know, uh, rising infection rates are telling us that the light at the end of the tunnel is seemingly further on than we'd hoped. But at the end of an awful time, notwithstanding, a good number of us are trying to get our heads around what happens next. What do the years look like um, coming up for us? Will we always have to wear masks? Will we need new COVID vaccinations every year? And we whisper, is this the end of the world? Is Jesus coming back now? The truth is, we don't know when Jesus will come back. Like a thief in the night, we're told, unexpected. But even over the last few years, a person who leans a millennials like me is tempted to think, is this it then? Is this the end of human civilization? As a father to two young boys, I can't tell you how much this thought worries me. It keeps me up at night. What did I do by helping to bring them into this world, into this existence? What am I doing 
nurturing them for a life and a world that might not exist past this decade. What the pandemic has done is that it's rendered many of our meaning-making systems incoherent. All of us have been raised with certain expectations of how life should go. According to the cultural narrative that many of us were raised in, we are supposed to go to school, get a job, get married, have children, and then retire with enough. But when something as big as this happens, and it shakes all of our lives, we start questioning the foundations of what we were doing before. If all it can take is an invisible virus, what sense can we make of our lives? In our passage today, Jesus responds to the crowd with one of my least favorite words, repent. <laughs> Some of my earliest memories of going to church uh, were of how I'd endure Sunday after Sunday of our Southern Baptist preacher, not even Western Baptist like you all, uh, going on and on about sin and our need to turn away from it. Now, back then, we didn't have separate children's services. I always tell my kids how lucky they are. Um, you were expected to sit there and be quiet the entire time. And so I got really good at, write, at drawing like robot battles in the back half of the bulletin, because what else was there to do? Well, something good, or something must have got in there, because I do remember a fair amount of what we call fire and brimstone preaching. And if you're not familiar with that term, uh, it's used to, it, it talks about how preachers used to talk about how the punishment for sin being thrown into a lake of sulfurous fire for all eternity. And I say used to because it's been a while since I've heard a true fire and brimstone sermon. The truth is, threatening people or scaring them into following Jesus doesn't go over so well with 21st century moderns, if it ever historically worked well at all. These days, you're more likely to hear sermons about inclusion and authenticity more so than the need to repent. I mean, think about it. The guy with a loudspeaker in the corner downtown, he's telling people to repent. The guy with the sandwich sign pacing up and down the block while ringing a bell, also telling people to repent. The caricature of every preacher in every movie and every TV show I've ever watched, it's also banging his hand on the pulpit telling people to what? Repent. The word repent isn't one we love to hear. We'd much rather sing, Jesus loves me, which, by the way, I sing to my kids every night. And we want to sit comfortably with the idea that God is getting behind our agendas and our ways instead of us getting behind his. Now, I could be overstating this as a symptom of living in the 21st century, as human beings aren't so different from age to age. We don't like being told that we need to change. We would much rather have a pet God who does what we want instead of a real living God with a will of his own who invites us to what he's doing. Many is the preacher who has tried to break down the Greek word for repentance, metanoia, into changing your mind. But the problem is that kind of word study falls short of how Jesus probably meant it. Given the context, he probably meant it not just as a little, you know, turn of your thoughts, changing your mind, like choosing vanilla over chocolate. No, vanilla, no, no, chocolate. He likely meant metanoia 
as a change in the way you were living. Now, this might sound like a strange place to start a reflection on living on after a pandemic. But when wondering what God might want to say to us today, as we puzzle through these really difficult years, this passage kept on coming back to me again and again. I really honestly wanted to give you a word of comfort, because we all need that. We all need that word of comfort. I wanted to be the deliverer of that. But this kept floating to the top. And it's not really a word of comfort, is it? The setup here was that Jesus was talking about being watchful and interpreting the signs that the master, so to speak, was about to return. And it's not quite clear how the topic of these slain Galileans came up. But it appears as though Jesus is responding to the idea that those who were executed by the Roman governor while they were worshipping somehow deserved it. If it sounds shocking that someone would come in to murder others while they were carrying out the forms of their faith, that's because it is. It's like, slipping, it's like someone slipping into the back of a midweek Bible study and then opening fire. It's like someone running into a mosque and then detonating a bomb. It's that bad. And in their surprise and alarm, people tried to rationalize that these people, these Galileans, had deserved it. You see, people from around the Sea of Galilee were known as being somewhat ill-tempered and rebellious. Think about Jesus' best friend, Peter. And though the text doesn't tell us enough about what was on people's minds, maybe people were wondering if those Galileans should have just shrugged their shoulders and kept quiet like the rest of them. Maybe they deserved to be slaughtered because they were too dumb not to keep their heads down. But Jesus says, unequivocally, no. Those Galileans were not any worse sinners than anyone else. And neither were those who died as a result of a freak accident when a building in Jerusalem, the Tower of Siloam, fell on them. In our passage today, Jesus reminds us that those people who died either at the hands of the Roman state or by a construction accident did not deserve it. That messes with how we want things to be. For the most part, we live as though karma is more important to us than grace. Karma is the idea that you get what you deserve because you've done good or bad things. Said another way, we North Americans live according to the idea that our society is meritorious. That is, you work hard, you get rewarded. Grace, the Christian virtue, is that you receive even though you don't deserve it. So when bad things happen, we naturally default to our assumption that so-and-so deserved it. This is what we all do in a tragedy. As a psychologist, I can tell you that something happens inside us when bad things happen. We automatically revert to thinking, this person deserved it. These people deserved it. One of the most comforting defense mechanisms we throw up to shield ourselves from meaninglessness is rationalization. We all want to know why bad things happen. And there's something deep inside us that wants bad things to happen to bad people. It sort of makes cosmic sense, doesn't it? 
And there are lots of times in the biblical narrative where people who do bad things get punished right away for their transgressions. Rationalization is when we use our logical faculties to establish cause and effect where there might not be cause and effect. It's what causes people to say, that guy with that skin color shouldn't have been jogging in that neighborhood. Or that girl with that dress on should not have been walking down that street at night. If that sounds reprehensible, that's because it is. It's a cold, cold way of saying these people deserved what happened to them. Now let's be clear. Defense mechanisms are psychological crutches that we unconsciously develop in order to get through life without going crazy. We all have them. Because even if you grew up bubble wrapped in a steel vault being hand fed peeled grapes, life is hard and stuff happens. And in order to cope, all of us have found ways to frame our world so that the terror of living in the here and now might just be put off for a moment longer. In my field, we call this adaptive behavior. It helps us adapt to a circumstance that's out of our control. However, the problem with most defense mechanisms and adaptive behaviors is that over time, they become hindrances to our flourishing. And so when this happens, what was once adaptive and helpful becomes maladaptive and a burden. Now you might think my work as a psychologist is focused on helping getting people off their crutches by stripping away the defense mechanisms, but you'd be wrong. We all need frames of understanding to help us get through. The way I work with people is to help them find the frame that will help them bear with a life where we always end up with more questions than answers. If you're a mental health practitioner like me or a psychology student, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, you may say to yourself, uh, no one really does this defense mechanism stuff anymore. And you're absolutely right, nobody does. But even if I'm not grappling outright with these defense mechanisms, one sliver of helpfulness remains. That if you can't live without defenses of one kind or another, you need to find something that works, not just for you, but for everyone. Some might call it sublimation, or the changing of unacceptable impulses into more socially acceptable ones. So what does rationalization have to do with repentance? And even more, with the pandemic? As I've already said, we assume that when bad things happen to particular people, we think that they somehow deserved it. Cancer, too many processed foods. Car accident, driving too fast. Got laid off, picked the wrong industry. But when something happens to all of us at the same time, and we have all of our lives radically changed, rationalization or the idea that we deserved it doesn't work as well as it used to. It becomes a hindrance, becomes maladaptive. Well, maybe we could blame increasing human and animal interactions as a result of development, but there have been pandemics and plagues in pre-industrial antiquity. They just didn't have airplanes to carry it around the world. But when we allow ourselves to think that all humans to a certain extent are to blame, it's a strange comfort to realize that if we are all to blame, then we all must bear the consequences of our collective sin. 
Now that feels like almost too much. It's hard enough dealing with our own personal sin. How can we deal with the sinful nature of our species? Jesus' answer? Repent. I realize that to hear repent in the face of a complex series of starts and stops as we reopen and restart is sort of incongruous on its face. Repent from what? We're trying to deal with anxiety over here. Tell me, Mr. Psychologist, how to get over the fear of strangers or of incidental coughs or of crowds? Well, the answer is simple. Most of the answers psychology provides are super simple. The answer here is to remember to breathe. Think of happy things as you navigate these places and positions of fear. Now the answer is simple, but the doing is hard. It's so much harder to live that out. So I offer you today not an anxiety for remedy, or sorry, a remedy for anxiety per se, but a change in perspective that as we live on, not to live as we did before. Repentance is often defined as don't do it anymore. Lusting after other women, don't do it. Drinking too much, put that bottle down. Getting angry at your kids and shouting, you bad boy, stop it right now. Now to be sure, bad habits need curbing. But repentance isn't just saying stop it. And even more, it's not just stop it. Each one of you on your own. There's a repentance that's required of us as human beings living in this time on this planet. And yes, that means in addition to looking at the ways we individually do not lead lives that bear witness to God, God's best for us, we do bear the responsibility of calling forth and enacting corporate or communal turn from sin. Now think about this. Almost any time Jesus uses the word you, Y-O-U, in the New Testament, and many more times throughout the First Testament as well, he rarely says you in the individual sense. That would be uh, second person singular for you grammar geeks. Instead, he very often uses the second person plural of you, as in you all. Now, it makes sense that he says you all a lot because he's usually doing a lot of public teaching. But then, if Jesus is speaking to a bunch of people at once all the time, why don't we natively read the Bible as people who are part of that crowd? If he's addressing a plurality of people, why do we always jump to journaling, this is what God is saying to me now alone in this time, instead of thinking that what God is saying to us as a people, as his people, as his peculiar people, and from his upside-down kingdom? Well, part of this is because most of us were raised in an individualistic culture that uses individualistic filters on everything we read and hear and receive. But how much more interesting would life be if we started listening to Jesus tell us, you all? My guess is that a lot of us would stop listening to the accuser telling us we're no good and that we can't possibly be saved. And then we might roll up our sleeves and live on as a part of God's holy people, the ones he sets apart, through whom he establishes his kingdom. The word repent means to turn. But I've come to realize that it doesn't mean a 180 degree turn back the way you came. 
I think many of us like the thought that repentance means going back to some prior innocent state, right? But frankly, that's a terrible idea because most of us probably came from such places of immaturity and ignorance that turning back means turning back into our old ways. Instead, maybe what we need to pay attention to is the idea of turning into, of transforming into someone else. Metanoia, or repentance, isn't just about stopping our sin. Metanoia is about growth. It's about wanting something different, to become someone different, with different ways of being and different priorities for our lives. We can't just go back to the way we were. No, repentance and metanoia is about growing into the kinds of people that the Spirit of God shapes us to become. If repentance and metanoia is about turning from sin, it is not just turning from the act of it, but what we think of it and its place in our lives, both in... This is where the Christian life becomes intriguing. Sure, you and I, honestly, are likely to sin until our very last breath. But instead of just hearing the stop it, maybe we also need to hear, go and do this. Do differently than we did before. Live according to the laws of justice and love and pursue mercy in all the avenues of our lives. But what about the small movements of our lives? You know, I've begun to notice that as people are getting back into a rhythm of uh, get-togethers and gatherings, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm finding it really difficult to be excited about them. I'm really not. In fact, I'm dreading people. I'm dreading get-togethers. I have a bunch of barbecues next weekend that I don't want to go to. Now, not because I hate people, but because the last year and a half of shrunken social circle has highlighted a few things. One. I have never liked small talk. I apologize to those of you I've small talking with before service, but we all know <laughs> we're just doing this to be polite. But I did it. We all did small talk because that's what we do as human beings in this culture. The second thing that's been highlighted for me is that when there is a life-threatening disease stalking us and widespread social discontent from top to bottom, it's even harder to care about the Canucks or your vacation plans. And so I'm beginning to understand that my reluctance, and maybe yours, isn't so much about anxiety over getting sick. It's that I don't want to go back to the way my relationships were going before. I want to talk about real stuff, to really get to know people better, and honestly, to be vulnerable with them so that they can speak truth into my life. If we're asking ourselves how we can go back to our offices, or put our kids on in sports, or even go to Sunday morning services anymore, maybe a better question to ask is, now that we've been helpfully disillusioned, how can we grow to live in the reality we've been shown? The frame that will help us all get through the fear of coming back together and practicing our lives once again is to realize that now we have that chance to change what was going on before. Jesus tells his hearers that unless they seek transformation of their entire lives, they too will perish or be lost. Now, it's easy to get bogged down what happens when people become lost. But instead of making this a sermon about the probability and, and nature of hell, perhaps it's more helpful to think about what happens when we choose life instead of death. 
That's what Jesus says. So that when Jesus says to us that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Maybe he's telling us that choosing life means choosing him. Not just imitation of him, but him and the life he provides for us. So it's not just us getting everything we want with this Jesus cherry on top. No, living the Jesus life means allowing a reordering of ourselves from top to bottom. If nothing else, the pandemic has given all of us a chance to reevaluate our lives. In an expensive locale like the Lower Mainland, it's easy to become obsessed with, at first, making ends meet. One of the main drivers of the anxiety I see in students is fear over what happens when they don't perform as well as they want. Not because they're afraid of being thought of as dumb or that they really care about their GPA, but that the GPA and the degree are seen as gateways through which a better life with less struggle is to be found. But if you can get into the school you want, and you can get the grades you want, and you can get the job you want with the pay you want, maybe it gets easier to make ends meet. But let's be real, it's nearly impossible for people of modest income to buy detached housing in Vancouver. So in order to achieve our dreams of the life we want, it does in many ways boil down to how much money we can make. And so it's then that we're no longer looking to make ends meet, we calibrate our lives from a young age towards financially rewarding careers. And so many of us choose careers that we don't actually really like, but at least it pays well. And if we're fortunate enough to get what we want professionally, it's hard to stop at the idea of enough. Now, when you get to my age, you're told that you should have started thinking about your retirement 20 years ago. <laughs> but before long, many of us find that we're stuck on a wheel of bowing down to mammon, saving for the day when we're eventually told that we're useless and no one wants us anymore. And that's painful to encounter and think about. Given this way of life and the way many of us were and are living, what does it mean to grow in that kind of environment, in this kind of world? I'm not about to say that you need to quit your studies or leave your job or sell your home or go wander the world. And I'm fairly sure that this is not what Jesus wants for us either. Because as people of relatively high privilege, and I know I'm generalizing when I say that now, the call is not just to steward our money, but our whole lives as to where Jesus calls us. The real difficulty of our lives is discerning how we might use what power we have wisely and for the purpose of helping to build the kingdom of God, not just our nest eggs. I wish I could say that I knew exactly how this growth looks for you in your environment. It'll look different for me and it'll look different for you but we all are called to grow, to change. And all I know is, at this stage in my life, I'm so much more aware of how the object of my first half of life was to check off boxes and jump through hoops. But maybe what it does mean is that even as we are jumping through hoops, we learn to hold our lives lightly, so that even when tragedy strikes 
and meaning is upended, we can hold fast because our meaning isn't derived from getting through the next hoop or checking off the next box. Our meaning comes from being one of the people whom God loves, whom God restores, and whom God directs into a new vision and new strength for new lives. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the time I've had with this people. And as I look out into the congregation, I realize that so many of us here are in different stages of life. And I know that um, it, it's a challenge at every stage of life to think through the idea of change, but more so than change, growth. And so we pray that you might grant us a vision of growth, both personally and corporately, not just in this church, but as people who live in this city, as people who live in this province, as people who live in this country. I pray that you will give us a vision for how we might live as your people, the people you've called and set apart in this world in which you have put us. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.